Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Tubi's Adam Luminson about the Fox-owned Avod Services programming strategy and what Netflix's about turn on advertising means for the industry. Paramount's Nicole Clemens and stars Catherine Busby on the trends shaping the industry right now. And Eureka Productions' Chris Kelvener on the Fremantle-owned Australian-American outfit's expansion plans. Fox acquired ad-supported VOD specialist Tubi for $440 million just as the COVID-19 pandemic swept. And the service has benefited ever since from the uptick in consumer streaming plus the growing popularity of free in the face of rising inflation. Chief Content Officer Adam Lewinson spoke to Ed Waller about Tubi's programming strategy, what Netflix's about turn on advertising means for the industry and the increasing synthesis of Hollywood and tech. Tubi is one of the largest ad-supported video-on-demand platforms, AVOD, uh, owned by Fox Corporation. And we're very focused on having the largest library in streaming, over 40,000 titles, paired with machine learning and algorithms to create an incredibly personalized viewing experience. Uh, so we're, we're very focused on, on providing our viewer the, the the best personalized experience possible. Um, tell us about your audience and how it differs from the audiences of S-Board, of broadcast, of uh, cable even. Yeah, well our, our audience is very broad in terms of demos. In general, AVOD is among the youngest in the, in the streaming set, uh, much younger certainly than some other SVODs, much younger than broadcast television and also very diverse. Uh, in the US, uh, about 40% of our viewers identify as multicultural. So we're very f- focused on uh, providing the experiences and representation that they're looking for uh, across various genres. You know, just like any uh, major streaming platform, right? we're not focused on one particular genre or one particular kind of audience. The audience is tremendously broad. And in a personalized environment, we're very focused on making sure each viewer has that individual experience that feels unique to them. But it's done in such a way, if you pull back, that's why there's this massive sea of content for viewers to dip into, right? And so it really, it serves the needs of an individual, but at the same time, it serves the need of this massive audience of over 51 million monthly active users. How do you explain the recent boom in AVOD services? So if you, if you look back at the history of television, it's always been predominantly a free experience, ad-supported. And over the past several years, with the rise of SVOD, obviously there's been this impression that, no, the future of television is the opposite. Everything is behind a paywall. But we've started to see, especially with recent events, where most of the major SVODs are going to have an ad-supported tier, it's really reinforcing the historical norm that viewers are very comfortable and actually prefer a viewing experience with ads, ideally for free, right? which is, which is why we're very focused on, on AVOD. So this is the year where we're really seeing the trend lines shift, where in terms of streaming, AVOD viewing is surpassing SVOD viewing. And ultimately, we we firmly believe and see in the data that in terms of streaming, AVOD will be the dominant form of viewership 
for, for uh, digital viewers worldwide. Where's Abel taking its audience from? So Linear has been in secular decline, and I think the exception there is live sporting events, huge live events like you know, the Academy Awards, let's say, and these big water cooler shows, let's say the, the Mass Singer as an example. So obviously there has been this massive sea change where just viewership in general has been moving to streaming. And it, ultimately it's a race for eyeballs. How many eyeballs can you bring onto your platform and, and how much uh, content are they going to consume? So for AVODs, you know, who are they stealing audience from? Well, ultimately it is from linear. Certainly it's been from linear entertainment cable channels uh, predominantly. But as that trend continues, I think we're just going to see that these big live must-see-now events, that's really the cornerstone of linear. Obviously live news fits into that category as well. And then everything else ultimately becomes this on-demand format, and that's where AVOD's role, I think, truly lies. What does it reveal about the viewing behavior of your audience? Are they sticking to sort of, you know, the old language of prime time and daytime and late night and, you know, the full season and that kind of thing, or, or is it, or is that no longer relevant? <clears throat> so as, as someone who used to program linear television and now programming for an AVOD platform, it's completely different. The strategy is different, the viewership trends are different, and I think so much of that, certainly at Tubi, how we approach viewership with everything being highly personalized, you're not necessarily seeing the type of day parting that you would traditionally see in linear. You're certainly seeing network quality shows performing incredibly well. So for instance, we have the mass Singer from Fox on Tubi. No surprise, it performs incredibly well on our platform. But viewers may be watching it at 2 a.m., they may be watching it at 3 in the afternoon, or they might watch it at 8 p.m. for what has traditionally been known as, as primetime. But yeah, the, the idea of day parting really goes out the window, right? And, and in a world of personalization, once we identify, oh, you're a viewer who loves to watch horror films, great. Well, here's thousands and thousands of horror films for you to dig into. If you want to sample something else, it's all here for you. But uh, that's a very different way of looking at content strategy than obviously a linear platform where you have X number of hours a day that you're programming and you're trying to find certain viewers at certain times. What do you think of, uh, what do you make of SOD players sort of moving into the space of live shows, weekly shows, appointment to view, that kind of stuff that seem to be going back, borrowing things from the linear world and some of them? So as we do start to see some of the SVOD platforms, and AVOD as well, dipping into uh, live events and sports and some of the things that we identify as traditional broadcast, ultimately it's just the viewing trends haven't changed in terms of what viewers want to watch. So as the platform changes or you know, moves from linear to streaming, it's not surprising that these events Follow. So with Tubi, we have uh, live news, we have the largest uh, offering of live local news than any other AVOD platform, just with the idea of 
we want to hyper-personalize your news experience. If you're in Atlanta, here's the Fox News affiliate in Atlanta so that you can find out what's going on in your town. Or if you're from Atlanta and you happen to be now living in New York, you want to see what's going on at home, right? That type of experience. Uh, we're also getting into sports. We've recently, well, we have uh, a wide array of fast channels in, with sports, NFL, uh, Fox Sports, our sister company, and, and many more. Plus, we've recently announced that for the first time ever, uh, after the whistle, we're going to have the World Cup matches on Tubi in a video-on-demand format, which I think would be particularly interesting for viewers where if the match happens to be, let's say, at 2 a.m. where you live, you can wake up at your normal time, the game is available for you on demand, which has not been uh, available previously. So again, it's viewers are still watching what they want to watch and asking for what they want to watch. Ultimately, it's about engagement and what's the right kind of content for your viewer to engage in your platform. Thoughts on um, new entrants into the Avod space, such as Netflix, for instance? So it, we're starting to see, obviously, Netflix, Disney Plus announcing that they're going to be adding a, an ad-supported tier. And in many ways, this is just a reaction to where the streaming wars has been and how bloody it's become on the SVOD side. And certainly Wall Street weighing in on, on what they think about future prospects. So uh, obviously SVOD is now in a bit of a shift. And really, I think many are looking at what has been successful for Hulu in that uh, everything's behind the paywall. But if you want the subsidy, if you want to pay less, uh, you can have the ad-supported tier, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe the majority of Hulu subscribers have selected that ad-supported tier. And so all of this is certainly a validation of the historical norm that viewers are very comfortable watching television with ads. I think it's, it's also a function of subscription fatigue, which has been this realization from consumers that they cut the cords, they didn't have to pay $120 a month, but then they line up five, six, seven SVOD services and they wind up paying even more than they were paying with their traditional MVPD bundle. So they start to see that calculus, they start to be very tactical about canceling services. When they're done watching their show, I'm gonna cancel that one, I'll jump over to this one, cancel, jump over to this one. Obviously that's bad for your business model. So I think what the SVODs are seeing is if they offer the subsidized tier, uh, it offers them, they hope, a helpful antidote to that uh, paralysis ultimately that comes from subscription fatigue. For Tubi, what uh, some would call a pure AVOD, we have no subscription, we have no paid tier, we're not adding a paid tier. We've always been focused on the same thing, and with that, it provides this frictionless experience for viewers, and it makes it a very consumption-based platform. Right? I'm not focused on, I must have Game of Thrones followed by the next big thing, because otherwise you will cancel. Right? I, I don't have to worry about that level of churn. That's not our business. Instead, I'm just focused solely on engagement and looking at the total number of hours consumed and making sure that our viewers are consuming billions of hours of content every year. 
uh, and that's our, our business model. So it's been very interesting to see the trends and ultimately I think very validating of the ad-supported model. What's been the sort of response, you mentioned the response of Wall Street, what about the response of the advertising community, the agencies, to not just the boom in Avon, but the fact that they're suddenly going to be able to buy inventory on, like, as you say, Netflix, Disney Plus, that kind of thing. Yeah. The response from the advertising community uh, to AVOD and Tubi in particular has, has really been stellar. And in, in some respects, right, it's, it's now that we're, Tubi is a part of Fox and under Marianne Gambelli, who runs uh, ad sales across Fox, uh, it's, we're offering something that's very comfortable with a level of measurement that just isn't po uh, possible under traditional linear television. And that level of targeting is incredibly important to marketers and brands and making sure that you're getting your message out to the right person. And in particular with Tubi, it started in ad tech. It started as an ad server and an ad platform ultimately becoming its own platform. So with that basis, right, we have a really powerful engine to match the right viewer with the right ad. Tremendously valuable. Um, so brands are really looking for that brand safe environment. They're looking for content that they know will align really well with their brands. And advertisers have found themselves very comfortable and very interested in our ability to really lean in. So as an example, Valentine's Day, we offer a really compelling offering of content, some originals, lots of acquired content, and we create this experience which makes it really powerful and exciting for brands. And then we create some of our own. Every August we now have what we call Shark Month Bite Fest. Uh, because one week of shark content is just not enough for viewers. They've told us we love sharks and it creates this tremendously uh, sticky audience which is really great for brands, great for sponsorship, right? And again, another opportunity for original content with a, a really deep layer of, of acquired content uh, for two years in a row, including the Jaws franchise. So yeah, we, we have these great uh, partnerships across Madison Avenue. We just had our, our new front and our upfront and engaging in those conversations and the, the embrace from advertisers has been really terrific. Talking about the, uh, the, uh, the new front and the upfront, um, let's talk about your content strategy. How is it evolving over the, over the years? How has it changed? So the content strategy for Tubi has always been married to the technology and, and really the strategy for Tubi overall. It's about hyper-personalization. And so in order to do that, it's really the content is paired with the algorithms to create this tremendously uh, uh, personalized experience for each viewer. And so we do that with a massive library, uh, well over 40,000 titles, possibly the largest library in streaming, paired again with the algorithms to, to create this experience. Um, we're also very focused on what our audience is telling us that they need. So with uh, around 40% of our viewers identifying as multicultural, 
They're looking for different experiences. They're looking for representation. That manifests itself in, we have a To Be an Espanol section, which is just dedicated to Spanish language content. Uh, one of the most popular uh, content sections is called Black Cinema with uh, representation in front of and behind the camera. We have a To Be Kids section for viewers who just want to, or either viewers and or parents, who just want to put their kids in a, in a kid-safe environment to, to watch that kind of content. And then most recently, a uh, little less than a year ago, we, um, we launched To Be Originals, really just to amplify our, our existing content strategy and to further amplify the experience that our viewers have in this hyper-personalized environment based on what they want to watch. So it's very definitely this intersection of media and technology, which of course is really the future of entertainment. On that, on that originals, tell us a little bit about um, you as in Tubi mentioned 100 original titles over the next 12 months at the New Front. Tell us the sort of things that you're going to be commissioning, as it were, producing. So uh, recently we announced that we're going to be doubling down on original content we found that the engagement with our viewers has, has really been stellar. And in most cases, the, the viewership on these originals has far surpassed our expectations with these titles in many, in many cases beating massive Hollywood titles. So we're really finding that level of engagement with our viewer and really being able to offer them an experience that amplifies what they're already getting from Tubi with acquired content. So doubling down means well over 100 uh, uh, originals over the next year. And in that, it, there's a wide variety. On, I'll start with Unscripted, where we are able to tap into some of our sister divisions at Fox. Fox Alternative Entertainment this is the same team who produces The Mass Singer and lots of other uh, major shows. They've been producing documentaries for us that have been among the most viewed documentaries on our platform, leaning heavily into true crime, some paranormal, some celebrity topics. Uh, TMZ is also another sister company recently acquired by Fox. So we've just announced that we're going to be doing some originals with the TMZ team, leaning into topics uh, like um, the, the death of Kobe Bryant, Britney Spears, lots of really uh, engaging topics that we're going to be announcing very shortly. Uh, and then um, Studio Ramsey Global, which is Gordon Ramsay's production company, obviously the most iconic chef, period. Uh, and uh, where Tubi has an ownership stake. So we've announced a cooking show that we're going to be producing alongside Studio Ramsey Global, and a lot more coming on, on the unscripted side of the fence. And then unscripted, um, we've been doing adult animation. We have a, a series called The Freak Brothers with Lionsgate and WTG Enterprises, and, and this is adult animation where our viewers have told us loud and clear they love adult animation. They can't get enough of it. And so this is a show that has already been proven in season one to be a real powerful, engaging tool. And in its launch window, it was our number one series with viewers. Season two coming back 
later this year, and, and this is a series based on a comic book uh, with uh, you know, Tiffany Haddish, uh, Woody Harrelson, John Goodman, uh, Pete Davidson, just a really great uh, array of voice cast. And so more, more to come in adult animation. And, um, and then I'll, I'll also mention movies. We're producing a lot of movies. Um, so, uh, some of this is coming from our partnership with Mar Vista Entertainment, uh, certainly a, a very popular producer of efficient movies uh, in the past, mostly for linear television, cable networks, but obviously now for digital. Uh, it's a company that was acquired very recently by Fox as well. So we're certainly producing a lot of movies with them and, and many other third-party producers. And with that, it's across a wide array. We, we certainly are leaning into true crime and thrillers. Those are working for us incredibly well. We have some Westerns coming up. We had some comedies with more uh, filming currently. Horror, where our viewers have told us loud and clear they love horror. Uh, and so we have horror every month. Uh, and uh, we culminates, of course, in October for Halloween, where we have a promotion called Terror on Tubi. Uh, and this year, the cornerstone of that is going to be a remake of the classic cult horror movie, Terror Train, which we're producing with Incendo up in Canada. Uh, and then I'll mention, too, you know, we're, we're very focused, again, in, in, serving, in super serving the needs of our viewers and also super serving underserved audiences. So we've been very focused on uh, African-American stories, very focused on Latinx, very focused on LGBTQ plus stories. Um, one of our biggest success stories thus far this year is a horror movie called Unborn uh, from uh, director Stephen Monroe. And this is, um, it's a horror movie uh, about a couple who happen, uh, who happen to be gay who uh, one of the women is pregnant and her unborn child may or may not be the spawn of Satan. I won't spoil it for you so you can watch it for yourself, but I think one of the, thing, one of the reasons why our viewers have been so engaged with this movie is not only does it operate as a really compelling horror story with a really compelling dilemma, but it, it's also the representation and the love story of this couple uh, from our two leads, which is really uh, deep and, and heartfelt and beautifully acted. So a lot more coming there. Um, we have a, a, a LGBTQ plus love story that we're gonna be announcing soon that's a really beautiful title. So more on that soon. What's the international expansion plan for Tubi? So at the moment, uh, Tubi is in US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Mexico. Um, our primary focus is still on the US, where as well as we're doing with 51 million monthly active users, there's still a huge amount of opportunity for us here domestically. So we're very focused on that. Having said that, obviously we have an eye toward future international expansion and finding territories where the ad-supported model works exceptionally well. Uh, so more to come on that soon. 
you've spoken a lot about Fox buying a lot of companies. You've spoken about, um, you know, there's a whole context of um, mergers and acquisitions, you know, driven by the sort of tech side of things. Is, are we getting to a point where Silicon Valley is taking over Hollywood? We're definitely living at a time where we're seeing that merging of Silicon Valley and Hollywood. And obviously it takes different forms, Apple, Amazon, obviously two of the most massive tech companies globally are big players in the content space. To uh, be, as I mentioned, started as an ad tech platform. Uh, and I think what we've seen now is that merger is really a permanent shift. I mean, ultimately, I remember the good old days where uh, when I was in linear television where you produce a piece of content, you, you get it on a digibeta, and you take it down to the ops team, they put it in the machine, it goes out on the satellite. You didn't really think about the pipe. You didn't really think about the delivery system. Obviously, the world is very different now, and technology is doing what it really does best, which is it helps to create a better experience. And that could be true of cars, it could be true of any number of things, uh, music for sure, and obviously for, for our lane in terms of long-form content, it is creating a superior experience and an experience that viewers can really engage on. So now I think we've seen, in general, right, the, the players are really set and the, the major studios have sort of now settled and refocused on, right, we have to be part tech, we have to be part content, and you need them both together, obviously, to be successful uh, in, in long-form content these days. So I think we, we've, we've been past the conversion point. We're really now in the future. And the future is really exciting. And I found, you know, for working with my partners on the technology side, there's so much to learn, there's so much to do, but it, it is really an exciting time to be in content. And there's so many new horizons that didn't exist 10 years ago. And we owe all of that to technology. Adam Lewinson. Nicole Clemens is president of Paramount Television Studios and Paramount Plus Original Scripted Series and has been a key player in the rollout of the company's streaming service and success it's enjoyed with series such as 1883, Mayor of Kingstown and Halo. She spoke to Ed Waller about these developments, her wider programming strategy and the trends she sees shaping the industry, including the impact of Hollywood studios increasingly retaining rights to their own shows. Now, um, I want to just talk about the Paramount Plus side of your job title, as it were, for a bit, and then we can come on to the studio side. Uh, it's got a lot of momentum behind it right now. Tell us what is driving the, the, that momentum of, of this, uh, the latest s platform. Well, from the standpoint of the original scripted series, we've had an incredible launch with 1883, Mayor of Kingstown, um, Halo is doing incredibly well for us, Strange New Worlds, Picard, all of our shows have, those are the, the, the big tent poles that have been released um, so far this year that are performing incredibly well. Um, I want to know what, what makes uh, a Paramount Plus original. What, what boxes have to be ticked for that green light to go on? I think what we're looking for at this point with Paramount Plus in terms of the original scripted series is broadly appealing, tentpole, popcorn, 
populist literature, you know, there isn't a type of show because you could have a show like Mayor of Kingstown, you can have a show like 1883, and you can have a show like The Offer, very different, but all broadly appealing. They feel like they are premium television that you, you know, need to subscribe to, but that deliver in terms of the level of production and storytelling and feel like you've had a big experience. We have um, Evil, season three coming out, which is phenomenal, it's, it's great. Um, we have Rise of the Pink Ladies coming this fall, and that's just to name a few of the big uh, shows coming our way. Part of your uh, arena, I guess, is to make sure you've got all the audiences covered with your service, so there's something for everyone. Is there a, a demographic or an audience that you feel needs needs something to, 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 uh, to well, you need to commission something? I mean, Paramount Global and, and then Paramount Plus within that, Paramount Plus, as I mentioned, has Nickelodeon, it has the youth and entertainment brands through MTV brands, it has our original series that are geared towards adults. However, I think a show like Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies could play eight to 80. You know, it just depends. You've got a show like Mayor of Kingstown starring Jeremy Renner that I think plays very adult, but still all very broadly appealing. So there isn't a demographic that we necessarily work backwards from. I think we're looking for, you know, definitely premium feeling. And I think more adult that, you know, it, it, it's our lane is sort of what is you're leading from Nickelodeon, from MTV, and then graduating into the um, adult scripted series. But within that, each title has its own particular demographics. Um, obviously, Paramount's in, Paramount Plus is in other countries at the moment, and, yes. and it's expanding globally. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, we are currently in about 26 markets internationally. By the end of the year, we'll be in 60. We've just launched in the Nordics, in the UK this June, and we have Asia, and we'll continue to launch and continue to expand in 23, but it's happening very quickly. We'll be everywhere. As a consequence of being everywhere, what about your local language strategy? Tell me about that. Well, I think the local language strategy will continue, and we will look for opportunities for those local language shows to pop and become global shows, and then we'll continue to build shows that we think can have global appeal from the get-go. Um, so it's, it's two-pronged. I mean, there, there are, I think, there's no clear recipe or guaranteed strategy to build a global show. I think one method is to have a really specific, authentic, phenomenal show that travels, and the other is to do a show like Halo, which is a show that has appeal, you know, I think wide appeal internationally. It's, it, it's doing fantastically domestically, but also absolute gangbusters, and you'll see as we continue on rolling out internationally that it's just really uh, outperforming our expectations. And co-productions have become a, a, a hot topic for Hollywood studios. You know, everyone seems to be getting into co-productions, particularly in Europe and places like that. Tell us about your activities in that area. You know, I think it's project by project. There are projects that come where there are co-production partners in place, and if the project makes sense for the majority of territories that are available for us, we're happy to do that. Um, for the most part, we are looking for global rights, especially if we're coming in at the, on the ground floor. Just broadening out the questions a little bit, I'm interested in sort of the, the impact of streaming on the traditional sort of business. Tell us about streaming's impact on, on the availability and, and cost of talent. Well, certainly the streaming wars have driven up the cost of talent, and I think the AAA plus feature talent coming to play in television because of a, you know, what's happened to the theatrical business and the retraction of the theatrical business has also had a, had a big part in that. Um, and I think, look, there are shows where that makes sense, 
right? And then there are shows where it makes sense where the show is the star and you discover people. So um, in terms of the overall business, I think probably one of the most impactful things that I, you know, I hadn't really realized until it was actually in it. And, and I, I felt it first as a consumer before I really thought about it from a business standpoint, but we're not competing anymore against the fall lineup or the new shows from the high-end basic cable or the fledgling Netflixes at the time, you're competing against the entire history of television. Because I've got you know kids and friends who have kids who are discovering legacy shows, and obviously we have those on Paramount Plus, which is fantastic. It oftentimes it's you know they're cycling through those shows and the originals, so it becomes a huge portfolio play where you need to have everything, which is why I think we're really well positioned with sports and news and original series and li deep library and, and theatricals and all of, you know, everything that it takes to, to keep people into, in an ecosystem. Obviously, the, the, there's been a lot of news about SVOD companies moving into AVOD space a little bit. Mm -hmm. Tell us about what that means for the SVOD business. Well, we already had an AVOD tier going in, so that was part of our original strategy, which is working really well for us. Do you think the, do you think it, you know, because obviously SVOD has, has put money in everyone's pockets in terms of drama production and other producers. Do you think that, that SVOD only model is going to, is, is not going to work anymore? Or? No, I don't think so, because I can speak as a consumer. I'm, I'm going to pay for the ability to not have commercials, but having an option for your audience who, maybe want to have you know, more options, and this allows them to do that economically, broadens your options for subscribers. So I think, it's, I think it'll, it'll be a dual situation going forward. Now, part of the, the streaming boom has, been, has seen the Hollywood studios pivot a little bit, or well, a lot, in terms of not licensing their product out to the international market and keeping it to feed their own service. What do you think of that, uh, that strategy, and, and what's the sort of consequences of it, do you think? So in terms of whether your content is, is kept in-house versus third party, I think you know, the, we've largely focused on bolstering our in-house um, platforms, Paramount Plus, Showtime, BET, um, because I think that strengthens the overall brand and we want the best of the best on our service. That said, we do have third-party business and you know we haven't rolled up those walls entirely. We won't sell legacy franchise IP outside the company. Um, but you know there are, there are things that don't necessarily work for that ecosystem in case by case selectively where it makes good business sense we'll sell to third parties. So what about the changing demand for US programming around the world? Because obviously there's that you just described, the sort of the ring fencing of American content. There's a big boom in local production. There's uh, you know the Squid Game kind of phenomenal. People looking at alternate sources of programming. Well, I think so. In terms of local language, international content versus domestic content, I think. I think that the world has changed, and I think the pandemic definitely accelerated that. People were home watching TV, looking for new television shows and sharing television shows that they loved with one another. And there was a phenomenal statistic about a, a large majority of Americans had seen a um, subtitled show, which I think 10 years ago was like a much, much, much smaller percentage. And so I think there's less of a barrier to entry for international content, you'll go to a show like Squid Game, 
I mean, it went like wildfire through through um, the community, and I think that that had to do with it was proselytized, and there just wasn't that sort of sense of other, right? And then so I think for us at Paramount Global, we are absolutely looking for those breakout shows, be they the shows themselves, be they formats that can then carry over. But I do think you're just seeing more and more um, willingness for people to find great shows and not not feel like they have to just look in their own backyard. Not so long ago, Hollywood was very much in, in charge of the international content business, the international entertainment business. Do you feel as though that there's been a sort of a power shift, a, a, a change, a, the balance of power shifted to more international now, do you think? Has Hollywood lost its seat at the, at the head of the table as far as entertainment and, and content? And I, I don't think so, because I do think we still drive the major, um, you know, the, the, the major markets and influence culture. But I do think that it's absolutely um, the global opportunities for discovery of talent, of writing talent, directing talent, producing talent, content that can translate back and forth is a huge opportunity for both. So I don't see it as, as a zero-sum game. There's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions in the business, and you know, Paramount Global has, has been involved in that. But you know, we've seen loads of M&A, Amazon with MGM, everything like that. Where do you think that's going to all end? What does, it, what does it all mean? I mean, we've seen a lot of tech companies buying up content companies. Is, is Silicon Valley sort of buying up Hollywood now? Is that the way to look at it? Honestly, I don't, I, I, if I had the answer to that, I'd be a very rich woman. Um, I do think that there is plenty of opportunity and I do think we're in a huge time of evolution and revolution in terms of the business. So I think there's gonna be a lot of opportunities. Um, I mean, certainly the merger between CBS and Viacom has been um, incredibly fruitful. So, you know, we'll see. And just lastly, I'm, well, I'm asking everyone what they think is the most impactful show that has had the biggest change on the industry. I mean, Game, I could say, I mean, Game of Thrones is a is a show that I love, but in terms of looking at how to produce a show, the, the, the there's, I mean, it's funny. Currently, I would say Squid Game, but you could also make an argument that Squid Game is just, it's it's a show that, that broke, and now what you'll see is a bunch of copycats, and I think Squid Game was specific to what it was, and I think that what it, what it has done is open the door for whether it's opened the door towards people to look at Korean programming, right? It certainly has for us in our, you know, we're really doubling down on our partnership with, with CJ and with our expansion into Asia. Um, but I think that, that it's the latest in a longer line of, of shows that have done that. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the Bureau out of France or Call My Agent, which I, I know is a small show in terms of its viewing, but it's a show that absolutely is, you know, really been beloved by Hollywood, maybe just because it's about agents. But it, you know, it's a small, very specific French show that had that appeal. I think it's all of these shows that are showing that if you build something, you know, normal people, small and specific and regional, but it's great, it has the ability to cross over because it's authentic. Nicole Clemens. US premium cable net stars is known for dramas including Outlander, Power, Becoming Elizabeth and Gaslit, and president of original programming Catherine Busby is on a mission to serve female and underrepresented audiences. She spoke to Ed Waller about her programming strategy, how stars is aiming to become more premium while at the same time sticking to its populist entertaining roots, and why Squid Game is the show that's had the biggest impact on the industry in the past year. 
creating programming by, for, and about women is what the mandate of STARS is. It's what we're all about. And it's actually part of our Take the Lead initiative, which goes beyond the programming. It's in the office. It's in the boardroom. We are all about women and underrepresented voices. What that means from our programming is that we are looking to work with creators who have a unique voice, who haven't had a chance in the past to tell their stories. And we're known for that. So our audience comes expecting to see programming that is not the same old, same old. So we've got just uh, wonderful, fresh voices, fresh shows that you, will, you, you might not see on any other network. Tell us about the ones that are performing the best at the moment. Well, as I said, we've had enormous success with the black audience, the female audience. So in our black audience, we have the Powerverse, which is power and the spinoffs, Ghost, Force, uh, Raising Canaan. And we have a very loyal following for that. In, we also have a whole other lane of programming, which starts with an Outlander, but all of the historical dramas, we're known as a place where women can come to get those juicy, elevated, beautiful, sweeping historical dramas. And we've got some of those coming this year. We have uh, Becoming Elizabeth, and we have The Serpent Queen, and we have Dangerous Liaisons. And we really, we do very well in those two lanes, but we also want to expand beyond that. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to do. Tell us about your plans to expand beyond that, which, which is your third lane. Well, it's really... When we say underrepresented voices, it doesn't mean just black. It means that it's everyone. We actually just announced two shows. One of them is a love story between a black deaf woman and a white hearing man. And it's created by Ava DuVernay and starring Lauren Ridloff, who is the first deaf superhero in Eternals and Joshua Jackson. So for us, that's an opportunity to tackle race and class, and ability, and love, and really speak to what's not on television, what hasn't been done before. So that's one. We also announced a show that uh, Tanya Siracho, who had created Vita for us, has brought us another show. We're so happy to be in business with her again. And this is about two best friends, two women that fall in love with the same man. But the best friends are Mexican-American, and the show takes place in London. So again, that's another way to, to do another kind of storytelling with voices that don't get to be on television. What's your biggest challenge when trying to amplify these underrepresented voices? The challenge is we don't have an infinite amount of hours to put all of these amazing shows on TV. So we always have to pick and choose, and it, it's we're spoiled with so many good options. So I think that's the, the hardest challenge. The best part about it, though, is we are known for that at STARS. And so people expect it from us, and they come to STARS to see programming from other voices. What does your data, if I can use that kind of thing, what does it tell you about the audience that you're getting? Because, you know, is it, is it, are people staying in lane, if you see what I mean? Are you reaching people that wouldn't otherwise watch this kind of stuff? Well, we're always thrilled when the loyal viewers from some of our shows watch some of our other shows. And what we've learned is that there's a certain through line of what makes a star show. And that has our fans watching them all. And that through line is that they're, they're bold 
and they're provocative. So whether it's outland or power, they go there. They're adult, they're edgy, uh, they're propulsive. And the people that sign up for STARS know they're gonna get that kind of programming no matter what lane it's in. So, so yes, we, we have been very lucky with our fans. And it's really about just getting more and building more. So with this expansion into the third and possibly fourth lane, what kind of shows are you looking for at the moment? Where do you want to go? We'd like to be more premium and more critically acclaimed, but we want to remain populist and entertaining because that's who STARS is. So we'd like to have more A-list talent in front of and behind the camera. We, while we love to do everyone shows, every voice. We wanna make sure that things feel more organically diverse. So not just white shows and just black shows, but we'd love to be in that middle ground. And we think there's a lot of opportunity in Latin American and in Asian and in East Asian and Native American. We really are doubling down. And if you saw our developments late, you would just see so many different shows and we're so excited to get them in the forefront and get them on the air. The, the American audience, so tell us about them, because it seems that they're much more accepting of international stories, international yes. characters, international locations, you know, much more than they ever used to, even with subtitles, this kind of stuff. So that audience is changing, and obviously you're leading that change in many ways. Tell us about how you, the opportunities that that creates. Well, we have had incredible luck and success with, foreign shows. I mean, Outlander is shot in Scotland and our viewers are very comfortable with other cultures and other languages. And, and I myself have found myself watching a lot more international television and we've seen that it works. We've seen that people aren't afraid of subtitles. And while I can't speak more to it than to say, we're looking at shooting something in Mexico City that's gonna be in Spanish and in English, and that is gonna be commissioned here in this country because we believe in it and we know it's gonna work. Does that internationalization or the appetite for it change the way you do business? Does it allow you to do co-productions more with country, uh, companies in other countries and sharing rights to content and that kind of thing? We don't wanna be afraid of any kind of deal. We like to make whatever kind of deal we need to make to get the right programming for us. So we're open to co-productions. We, we do many and we work with international partners. We work with domestic partners. And again, it's all about the content. And if we want it, if we feel like it can work on stars, we're gonna make it work. What's been the impact of, of streaming on, on your domestic business? In a strange way, the impact of streaming has given us more creative opportunities because we have found that while streamers need to scale up to fill all of those hours, it, it leaves what we call a white space for edgier, more unique, auteur-driven drama that is risky. And we like, we like risky drama and we like edgy drama. And so as the streamers move more towards general entertainment and being everything for everyone, we're very happy to stick to the brand that we're known for and that we do well. Has there been an impact on um, sort of the availability of talent? I and mean, we call it talent inflation, the price for talent seems to be going up. Is that, is that something that you can speak to? Our feeling about talent is one of the great things that's happening at Stars is they wanna come here. So an example is Gaslit. We've got a beautiful production starring Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. We are thrilled with the show. Um, and yet 
Sean Penn has already brought us another show that we're negotiating on because he considers it a home. And what we find is that if the great creators and artists that come to stars, if they have a good experience, they're going to come back. So it doesn't feel as competitive as you might think. We, we think there's great talent out there and we feel very lucky that they've been coming to stars. Just to finish up on sort of any other programming initiatives that you've got lined up for the remainder of this year and beyond. I wouldn't call it an initiative. Our mandate has been and still is programming for, by, and about women and underrepresented voices. We think there's huge opportunity because there's so many voices that haven't had their shot yet. And really what you're going to see in STARS is we're going to double down on what we do well and do more of it. We do want to also elevate the network. So you're going to see some bigger swing, bigger name things coming in the door as well. But we're also very happy and thrilled to work with new voices. As long as it's distinct, as long as it has the stars swagger to it, as long as these shows announce themselves and are bold the way the shows that we have. So that's what we're hoping to do in the future. And we feel really optimistic. It, it's a great time for television and there are great creators out there. And we're very happy that many of them are coming to us. Uh, we, 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 we're asking executives that we're talking to sort of about the most impactful show that changed the industry. So tell us uh, what your thoughts on the most impactful show of, of the last year and, and why. When I saw Squid Game, I couldn't believe it. I thought that was a real game changer, to have something that felt, on the one hand, so foreign in terms of the language and the culture, and yet so recognizable in terms of the humanity and, and the, the, the whole scope of humanity, of danger and game playing and mystery. And it really set the world on fire in, in a way I've never seen any show. So if you had told me a few years ago that Squid Game would be the most popular show in the world, I wouldn't believe it. So that really taught me something about international television and the, and the power of good storytelling no matter where it comes from. Catherine Busby. LA and Sydney-based Eureka Productions was founded in 2016 by Australian TV veterans Chris Colvinor and Paul Franklin with backing from Fremantle. The company is behind series including The Real Love Boat for CBS and Network 10, Holy Moly for ABC, plus Netflix's Byron Bays and Lux Listings for Amazon. Eureka, in which Fremantle took a majority stake last year, is responsible for all the latter's entertainment, reality and game show formats in Australia and has been expanding recently, hiring former Endemol Shine North America president Eden Gaha and promoting exec producer Wes Denning to head of global formats. Colvener spoke to Ed Waller about these developments, how the company has benefited from the boom in streaming while continuing to cater to its broadcast partners and the trends shaping the unscripted business right now. Uh, my name is Chris Colvener. I'm the co-CEO of Eureka Productions. Fantastic. Now tell us about this trans-Pacific strategy of having a base in Australia and a base in LA. Um, so my co-CEO Paul and I, we have a background in Australia and most recently in the US. So when we were starting Eureka, we thought, um, let's build a bridge between these two marketplaces. They're such similar marketplaces, particularly in the unscripted world. Um, so in terms of trading talent, in terms of finding formats, in terms of even co-producing, it just really made a lot of sense. Tell us about the sort of the successes that that strategy has yielded. 
I mean, a lot of the successes of about having these two bases, um, we didn't even predict when we first started Eureka. Um, one of the ways that we kind of really benefit from this is we produce a lot in the States that, that's actually post-produced in Australia. Um, that helps us from a tax incentive perspective, from a cost perspective. Um, other things that, um, other ways that it's paid off is uh, we produce Crikey's Irwins. So we produce that for discovery in the US, but obviously our, our Australian base produces that production. So that's shot in Queensland on the Irwin Zoo um, and has been a huge success for us and for Discovery Channel. Um, and it's just, you know, we've sold um, different series that started in Australia, like The Real Dirty Dancing. We recently sold that to Fox in the States. And then most recently, um, we found a way to kind of almost co-produce um, for Channel 10 and CBS on The Real Love Boat, whereby we're shooting the Channel 10 version of that show first and then the CBS version of it right after. So all these kind of benefits when we um, started Eureka in 2016, I don't think we saw, but have really paid off in dividends. And how, how does the, the development teams on each side of the ocean work together? It's one single slate. So we don't necessarily um, develop just for the US or just for Australia because of those similarities. And we have one team that's constantly pitching both marketplaces. And what's funny about development is you never know where something's going to sell. So you might create something with a US network in mind that finds a home in Australia and vice versa. So that's been a real benefit for us as well. Now, you've made an appointment with, uh, uh, with Wes. Tell us about the strategy behind that appointment and what his, his role was. So Wes Denning has been at the company since its inception and has done an incredible job working with the US team. And as we expand um, our, our business between the US and Australia and do more co-productions, more US shows shot in Australia and vice versa, we really wanted someone to own that space, own that system. So Wes will be overseeing that strategy and building it up. And we also have aspirations to um, start creating shows outside of Australia. And Wes will also be responsible for um, overseeing that. The other thing that has happened recently is in Australia, uh, we're now overseeing all of Fremantle Media's catalogue. Um, and so Wes will be working internationally with our partners at Fremantle to find all their great formats and, and hopefully launch them in the Australian marketplace as well. Um, and Eden Gahar has recently been announced as the president. Uh, he's going to be based in our US office and really driving the growth of that business. Um, he's overseen some of the biggest shows from Survivor to The Apprentice. He's been the president of Endemol Shine for a number of years and run his own shop as well. So he's going to be a huge asset to Eureka. Tell us about that, that, that changing relationship with Fremantle. Yeah, absolutely. So when we started Eureka, um, Fremantle were a minority stakeholder in us and have, um, over the course of our, our life, effectively increased their stake in us. Um, and what's that, what that means is um, last year they took a majority ownership in us and that has led to the decision at Fremantle to um, hand over their formats in Australia and have Eureka oversee the development production of them, which is a really great partnership um, and we're excited for it to continue. I'm also interested in this international expansion that you talked yep. about. Are there other bases that you're going to set up in within America or Europe? Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I th through shows like Holy Moly and The Real Dirty Dancing, um, Eureka's programming has naturally been expanding outside of Australia and the US. And as we kind of look to grow, I think there's, you know, particular markets, um, Europe and Asia that, you know, we're, we're looking to expand out into the next couple of years. We believe that Eureka's brand is synonymous with um, really high quality production, big ideas, 
and we're excited to take those big ideas to um, to new places. And a little glimpse of the development slate or production slate for 22 and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in addition to you know our big shows like Holy Moly and um, the Real Dirty Dancing, there's a lot of new shows that are coming down the pipe as well. Extremely excited by the Real Love Boat. Um, that is taking a, a piece of beloved IP and giving it that unscripted twist. So. Um, that is launching in, in Australia and in uh, the US this year um, is a big, big priority for Eureka and we think has huge, huge international potential. Um, we're also working on a few um, big new worlds. And what I mean by that is um, kind of crazy ideas um, like the Love Boat or like Holy Moly. Um, there's one in particular that we're excited to pitch in the next couple of months, uh, too early to, to, to discuss, but uh, very excited about. And then the other thing we're excited about is um, our show Parental Guidance. So Parental Guidance was a show we launched in Australia last year on the Nine Network. Um, it's been recently sold into the US. It's a big, big show. And then that show is also traveling around Europe via Fremantle Media's distribution as well. Now, uh, the real Magic Mike, the real Dirty Dancing, the real Love is there just a strategy to do the real version of... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in a crowded landscape that we're seeing right now, it's so hard to cut through with a new format, with a new idea. And so working with these big IP partners has allowed us to tap into the nostalgia, tap into that brand value, but also put our new Eureka twist on those. So uh, Magic Mike has had huge success, as has Real Dirty Dancing. So something like the Love Boat, where people have such fond childhood memories, they remember the theme song, um, it just gives us a really great head start. That doesn't mean that it's our, our core strategy, but it's certainly one aspect of Eureka's development that we're really excited about. What about any other genres within the scripted space or even outside yep. that you're going to be targeting? Um, I think, you know, for us, we're known for big ideas in the competition space, in the physical uh, arena as well. Um, that's kind of out where our core business is. Um, we've also recently been expanding into docu. So we've had big success with Lux Listings in Australia, which is a real estate show looking at the kind of the big wealthy homes of Sydney. Um, that's run for se three seasons on Amazon. We also had a lot of success with Byron Bay's on Netflix, which is, you know, diving into really interesting, kind of captivating characters. And most recently, 20-somethings that we shot in Austin, Texas for Netflix uh, late last year. So while we've kind of been known for these big shows like, you know, Holy Moly or even MasterChef um, when we worked at Endemol Shine, I think Docu is a, a big expansion for Eureka as well. Just broadening it out a little bit. Obviously, the, the international unscripted market has changed dramatically over yeah. the last couple of years. Give us a little snapshot of, of those changes, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So when we started Eureka, I think we thought streaming might be a sliver of our business. But the, the boom of streaming has completely transformed our growth. Um, at the time that Eureka was growing, so too was Netflix, HBO Max, Amazon, and they were very hungry for new unscripted programming. So we've had great success working with those clients. Um, I think you know the thing that um, excites us about it is they're looking for big new ideas that are gonna put their streaming service on the map. And that's exactly what we love to do. So that's been a boon for our, our business. The other thing I think the streaming boom has done is it's actually uh, made the networks sit up and take bigger swings as well because they wanna compete. So we've seen, you know, big networks in both Australia and the US really kind of take big, loud commissions that maybe 10 years ago they may have played it a bit safer. So it's certainly been um, an extremely exciting time to be an unscripted producer. 
in, in, in particular with Netflix, I uh, just want to focus on how they've changed the business. Some yeah. might say saved the business. Yeah. I don't know, to focus in on them a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So our experience with Netflix has been fantastic. We were one of their first unscripted commissions and certainly their first dating show with Dating Around, um, which, which launched uh, a number of years ago. What was great about Dating Around was Netflix came to us and said, we want to do dating and unscripted in a different way, which as a, as a creative is music to our ears. So that has been um, a fantastic journey with them and we've made a number of series post that. Um, but Netflix, you know, you look at their business and it's, you know, unscripted is such a critical part of it. And it is a hungry beast as well. So they need a lot of volume and they have a great kind of bar of quality as well. The way in which Netflix buys formats on a global basis yeah. rather than allowing a company like yourselves to sell them out territory by territory. How has that changed things? You know, it, it certainly has changed the business model, but it also there's opportunity there as well. So Dating Around is a great example. We made two series in the US and then we worked with a Brazilian company to make a Brazilian version as well. So while it still is in their ecosystem, by no means does it shut off the idea of international formats or international expansion. In fact, you look at shows like The Circle and Too Hot to Handle and you actually see that there's huge benefits sometimes to being in that Netflix ecosystem and being expanded out into the globe. What's the, what's the difference between an unscripted show on terrestrial cable streamers? I think one of the core differences when you look at broadcast and you look at streamers is just how it's consumed and how it's watched. So obviously streaming generally is designed to binge. So when you're creating a show, you're imagining someone sitting down on the couch and how do you hook them from one episode to the next? While often in broadcast, obviously it's appointment viewing. Um, so you look at a show like 20 somethings, which was designed for Netflix, we were constantly thinking about what was that cliffhanger to keep them through that to that next episode. While a show like Holly Molly, which sits on a broadcast network, you imagine that being a, a kind of almost like an event where the whole family sit down and for one hour enjoy it. And we're really conscious of wrapping it up for them. So I think that's the main kind of the way we think about it. It's, it's just the structure of the show and then how it's consumed. Do you think that the streamers in particular, you know, the Netflixes of this world would change their approach to rights and how many, you know, the kind of all rights, all territories in perpetuity kind of deal yep. now that there's more competition? Yeah, uh, listen, I, we're, we're seeing all sorts of different deals depending on, you know, I guess how attractive a program is, how many bidders there are. So it's not a, at the moment at least, it's not a one size fits all approach. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're seeing some companies want all rights, some want specific uh, territories. And I think that not only um, speaks to how uh, desirable a format is, but also the intention of that streaming service. Do they just want to live domestically? Do they have aspirations to go globally? All that factors into the deal making. And obviously, one of the more recent trends, I guess, is the uh, studios entering the business and, and withholding their content to feed their yep. streamers. Tell us that about that strategy and the impact it's had on, on the global distribution market. Yeah, so the sort of the almost the, the verticals that you're seeing where you're seeing the studios and the streaming services align and, and become somewhat of a silo has been fantastic for an independent like us. Because now the one place that these streaming services can go for for that big new IP, that big new idea, is independence like us. So it's been the real opportunity um, for a, a company like Eureka to come up with those big worlds and you know sell to the likes of Netflix or HBO Max or to Amazon. So if anything, I think independence is a huge, huge um, benefit right now. And are you finding that 
uh, channels around the world that previously would have got their American shows but now can't are coming to independence as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think so as studios become more siloed, I think you're seeing international players and international networks look globally for the next great idea. And we're certainly seeing a huge amount of interest in our formats from all over the world. So while they might have just bought US shows previously or US formats, we're seeing people hunt in Australia and 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 further afield to find that next great hit. Been a lot of mergers and acquisitions, big and small. Tell us about that and, and how much of it is dri- driven by rights retention or whether it's just getting market share or I don't know, tell, tell us about that whole M&A activity. So obviously we're seeing a huge amount of M&A and merger activity. I think a lot of that is driven by content and IP because ultimately I think what we've found is that is that is the core. Content has always been king and it continues to be so. So as we see these mega mergers, I think it comes down to the titles they have, the formats they have, and the fact that these streaming services need product. So I think you know it's great for producers who have great product, who have great ideas, because there's always going to be a need and a desire for them. And streamers setting up their own in-house production hubs around the world rather than outsourcing it to companies like yourselves. Is, what, what's your take on that? A threat opportunity? What? I mean, the the idea of um, internal production companies, whether they be in a, a broadcast network or a streamer, it's you know it's not new. It's been going on for the last two decades. We've never felt threatened by it because I think it's it's almost like a portfolio view that these companies need to take. Yes, there's cost efficiencies for producing some things in-house, but if you do that too much, you'll miss out on the next great idea. So I think we've always found that you know that great idea, that great execution on production means that you're always going to get a seat at the table at those places. And then there's also opportunities for co-productions, for, for different business models as well. So we're certainly open to it, not particularly threatened by it. What about the streamers, in particular Netflix, moving to AVOD? Does that signify that the sort of streaming boom for producers is coming to an end? Um, I don't think it means that the boom is coming to an end. I think they're still feeling out um, their way with the consumer. I don't think that's particularly going to change our relationship or the content we make for them. I think it's more about the consumer end-to-end product. Um, Obviously, all these platforms are feeling out their way, feeling the right price point, um, the right model, um, I think the great thing is, whether it's advertising or a subscription service, what these places need is hit shows and fantastic content that's going to hook the viewer in. So hopefully, if nothing else, it, it is beneficial to everyone. And obviously, a lot of other AVODs are out there. Are they now sort of moving into original production as well, emulating what happened in Nesbitt? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, almost every platform is very, very actively looking for unscripted. Uh, whether that be the Roku's of the world, the Discovery Pluses and the HBO Max's of the world, um, everybody is hungry. So um, we're seeing across the board buyers who didn't exist five years ago, you know, really actively playing in the space. As you just described, everyone's now looking for shows. Yeah. Is there like, a, is the, the talent is in much shorter supply? Tell us about the, sort of the race, the scramble for talent. So obviously with um, this huge appetite for all these amazing shows, both in streaming and broadcast, there's a big demand on talent, um, both on screen and behind the camera. Um, We've always found that talent is attracted to really exciting ideas, great creative, and obviously great environment. So what we've tried to do is frankly have the shows that people want to work on. And that's uh, the same in Australia, where people have the opportunity to work on big US shows. And in, um, and in the US, where people have the opportunity to work on a big show shot in the Mediterranean. 
Um, so that's been, um, that's been our experience is, yes, there's a demand on talent, but you have the ideas, you have that creative, you can attract an incredible team. Chris Calvina speaking with Ed Waller. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 